stand, please, as Teresa comes to read our scripture this morning. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. This is the word of the Lord from Matthew 11, 1 through 6. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. So if you were to go to YouTube today, and not right now, but later today, and look at the highest rated videos, one of them is called the Selective Attention Test. It's also called the Gorilla Experiment, and some of you may have seen this. If you haven't, then I'm really going to spoil it for you, For you, I'm sorry, but, but you can use this to, to try to, to trick others. You won't work with anybody in the room now, but you can use this to try to trick others and see... If the experiment uh, reveals itself in your life as it did for many others so here's what the selective attention test the gorilla experiment does there's a short video it's less than a minute and there are six people who are passing around basketballs three of them are in white shirts three of them are in black shirts and the, the goal of the, of the test is to count how many times the players in white pass the basketball and and in the middle of them passing the basketball for about 11 seconds a person in a gorilla suit walks into the middle of the shot, thumps the chest, and then walks off. And the, the, at the end of the test, you, you're asked how many passes were there, and the answer is given. And then they say, did you see the gorilla? When, when this was first done, it was actually a Harvard study several years ago. And around half of the people who were watching the basketball being passed around did not see the gorilla come into the middle of the screen. So again, don't do this right now, but just for fun later, go watch it, see if you can get somebody else to, to miss the gorilla. We did this in our home. I thought for sure if I tested six people in our house, one of us would fail, but, but none of us failed. I think we were probably watching it on too small of a screen, okay? So get a really big screen, invite your friends and neighbors over and see what happens. But here's what they say about the selective attention test. They say this experiment reveals two things. First, that we are missing a lot that is going on around us. And second, that we have no idea we are missing so much. Here's something I will add to the experiment. Often we only see what we're looking for or what we want to see. And as a result, we often miss really important things that are right in front of us. And I wonder if maybe that's a little bit of what's happening here with John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as great as he was, seemed to be struggling at this point to see and understand what Jesus was really doing. This chapter begins with John's difficult question. And I call it a difficult question because for me it's difficult to interpret and understand 
why John asks what he asks. It begins here with Matthew telling us that as Jesus' public ministry was ramping up, and we've been seeing that progression the last few weeks, especially in Galilee, John the Baptist now had been put in prison. Now, why was John in prison? Well, Luke tells us in chapter 3 that John had rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, who was his brother Philip's wife. And also, he had rebuked Herod the Tetrarch for all the other evil things he had done. And so Luke says, Herod added another evil act. He locked John up in prison. We talked about this a little bit last week. When you push back against the establishment, the establishment usually doesn't react kindly. And John, in this case, has called out a very powerful person for, for being in an immoral relationship and entering into this marriage with his brother's wife, which everybody knew was wrong, but certainly according to Scripture and, and Jewish law that's built on Scripture, it was wrong. Now, I think it's important that we clarify here, as we've been looking at John's preaching and teaching ministry, John was not one of those who went around all day long nitpicking everybody who was in power that he disagreed with. You don't have to look far these days to find people who do that. It never stops. It doesn't matter what the person does. If they're not from their party, if it's not someone they like, they will nitpick everything they do to the level of the color of their socks, right? They will nitpick everything. John wasn't doing that. John was telling everyone the same message Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is coming in a way like it's never been seen before because the Messiah is about to be on the scene. And John's message over and over again is, get your heart right with God and be ready to put your whole heart and life in faith in following Jesus Christ. That's his message. But in this case, John specifically rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, and I believe it's because of the seat that Herod was sitting in. Herod the Great, Herod the First, his, his power had been broken up among several members of his family. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And even though not, not one of them held all of the power, they were all still claiming to sit in the seat of king over Judea, of God's people, or over the, the lands where God's people had been promised that this would become their own, their, their treasured possession, just as they were God's treasured possession. In other words, the Herods were still claiming to be God's men leading God's people. And so in this case, John is saying, if you're going to invoke God's name, Yahweh's name, through the very position that you hold, and then do something like this, marry your brother's wife, know that you're in an immoral and wrongful and sinful sexual relationship, I'm going to call it out. And what happened, what resulted from John's willingness to call out this sin publicly is that he was put in prison. And so it was while John was in prison that his disciples, John's disciples, were visiting him in prison and attending to his needs that he was also hearing about some of the deeds of the Messiah, some of the things that Jesus was doing. And again, Luke helps us here understand a little bit of the context. This is the same timing, the same passage, but Luke's account. Luke says, at that very time, when John was in prison and when he asked his question, Jesus had cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and he gave sight to many who were blind. So Luke tells us that this is what John heard when he was in prison. 
that this, in fact, is what Jesus was doing. This, these were the results so far of the ramping up of Jesus' public ministry, especially in and around Galilee. And so John, verse 3, sent his disciples back to Jesus to ask him this question. Are you the one who is to come? In other words, are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? Now this, as I've said, is, is a hard question to understand and to interpret. And at least for me, it's hard for a couple of reasons. First of all, remember, Jesus did not just appear in John's life suddenly, right? They were related. They grew up together at times. Surely John is not now asking, actually, Jesus, are you the Messiah, when He's known his whole life that Jesus was the Messiah, and he's known his whole life that God had set him apart for this role of, uh, of being the forerunner who would prepare the way for Jesus, who would step onto the scene and, and, and be publicly now known as the Messiah. Surely John hasn't changed his, his mind about that. He's, he's known and believed this his whole life. The second reason it's hard to understand is because We've watched John so faithfully, as we've said, not merely announce Jesus as Lord with words, but pointing people to Jesus over and over again, to the point that, as we saw last week, John says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. It is time for me to fade to the back and for Jesus to take center stage. And so why now, after saying that, does he seem to be questioning and, and struggling? Well, well, here are some reasons why perhaps John asked the question. Some have suggested, when I say some, I'm talking about a couple of reliable ancient Christians like John Chrysostom, St. Augustine. They suggested that John was asking this question not so much for himself, but he was asking the question to, to send his disciples back and encourage their faith so that they would actually go and hear Jesus' response for themselves. So, so that may very well be what he was doing. He's handing off his disciples to Jesus because he's in, in prison, and he wants them to go ask the question so they will hear with their own ears Jesus say, yes, I'm the Messiah. That's, that's one suggestion. Another is that maybe John was just impatient. He wants to see faster results than what he's hearing. So, so maybe this is a lack of patience. Or what most have suggested is that what John was struggling with is that what he was hearing was different than what he expected. He had in, in his mind some expectations of what the Messiah would do. He knew who the Messiah was, but he had some expectations of, of what the Messiah would do. And this, was, this report that he was hearing was different than what he expected. Jesus was not overthrowing the corrupt people in power jesus was not at least yet in his message bringing judgment instead he was bringing healing freedom and the message of good news to the poor and john perhaps sent his disciples to ask jesus this question because he needed to understand more this is this is what most scholars throughout the centuries have said was behind John's question. Now, just for fun, and I, I tried to cut this thing up, but I just couldn't decide what to cut out. 
just for fun, I want to read you just a little bit of a longer selection from one of my favorite commentators on Scripture, G. Campbell Morgan. If you are, are someone who studies the Bible regularly and you like to use sources, if you've never found good old G. Campbell Morgan from the 1800s, I highly recommend it. Beautiful, wonderful, amazing explanation of Scripture with, with always very, very good application. For any of you who, who may know, know the name Roy Fish, who was a professor at Southwestern Seminary, I was blessed to be able to have Dr. Fish right at the end of his career, and he loved G. Campbell Morgan. He, he introduced me to him and used him all the time in class. So I want to read this sort of along this idea of Jesus not being what John expected from G. Campbell Morgan. Morgan wrote, In order to understand the question which John sent by his disciples, we must place the works of Jesus into contrast with what John had been saying before Jesus began his public ministry. John had been almost fierce as an ascetic, thundering against the sin of his age. He had shaken off the dust of his feet against the cities and had gone into the wilderness. And by that wonderful attraction of a man with a living message, he had drawn multitudes after him. There on the banks of the Jordan, this rough, rugged, magnificent man, the final prophet of the Hebrew economy, had thundered against the sins of his time. He had singled out from the crowds about him the ringleaders who were seducing the people from loyalty to God, and he had called them a generation of vipers. Having denounced sin, he had spoken of the coming king in a wonderful description, whose winnowing fork is in his hand, who will thoroughly cleanse his threshing floor, who will gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn up with unquenchable fire. This was magnificent and majestic language, describing the king as a great and mighty reformer, breaking down abuse, sweeping out oppression, gathering precious things and blasting evil things as with thunderbolts. John in prison inquired about the king. And the prophetic fire was still burning within him. The passion for the righteousness was still like a blaze in his heart. But then they told John that Jesus had gathered only a handful of men, had gone up into the mountains, and had been talking to them, and that he had healed a leper, that he seemed to be doing gentle, sweet, loving things. But so far there had been no word of judgment. So far, no woe had fallen from his lips. His was a mission of mercy, not of judgment. And John was in prison and was strangely perplexed. Abuses were everywhere. Lightning was needed to blast them. And he was healing people. Men had turned their backs upon the divine government. They should have been dealt with in judgment. And he was preaching good news. John thought that by now he would have struck down the oppressor to death. But instead, he was singing the song of the gospel. Out of the perplexity of his heart, he sent his disciples hurriedly to him with the blunt and honest question, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, I don't know if Morgan is right. I don't know for sure that this is where John was struggling. But I do know that even just considering that idea is a reminder that all of us at all times must take great care to seek Jesus 
and to point to Jesus for who he is and not for who we want to make him to be. We too can easily approach the Lord with our own expectations of who we want him to be or who we wish he would be or what he might do for us or what he might do to those who are against us. But we must take care at all times to point to Jesus for who he is, not for who we want to make him to be. And I don't know about you, but does it make anybody else feel better that even John the Baptist struggled? Even the great John the Baptist, as we see in this moment in the text, struggled and asked a difficult question. To me, this part of the story is a reminder that it's okay to be human. And it's okay sometimes to struggle. And I'd like to think that no matter why John was asking this question, I'd like to think that it was a hope-filled question. I would like to believe that John was not so much doubting whether Jesus was the Messiah, but that when he asked this question, remember where he is? He's in prison. He's suffering. He's struggling with what is to come. And I believe John is saying, He's asking this question, but he's believing in faith that the answer is yes. Are you the one who is to come? He's believing in faith the answer is yes. Or should we expect someone else? And he knows in his heart, no. But help me, Lord, help me understand with what I'm hearing, what it is that you are doing. And what we see in the next part of the passage is that Jesus neither condemns John nor is he harsh with him when he sends back his response. But rather, he addresses this sincere struggle in John's heart with grace. And if John's question was, in fact, a hope-filled question, Jesus certainly gives a hope-filled response. Jesus replied, verse 4, go back and report to John not just what you've heard about. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. And Jesus' hope-filled response has six proclamations followed in verse 6 with a beatitude. You remember the beatitudes from Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who. Blessed is the one who. And verse 6 is a beatitude. Here are the six proclamations, though, starting in verse 5. How do we know that Jesus is the one who is to come? Go back and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And good news is proclaimed to the poor. I also note here what is not said. And maybe this is part of why John or maybe John and his disciples were struggling. What Jesus did not say was, I've started my own religious movement to supplant the others. Nor did he say, I'm building an army. Herod Antipas is going down first, and then Caesar is next. doesn't say that either. Nor does he say, I'm amassing great wealth and popularity so that I now can become the best show in town. doesn't say that either. How is it clear that what John has been prophesying and saying all along, the kingdom of God is near the kingdom of God is in your midst. How is that being made clear? Go back and report what you hear and see. 
the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is being proclaimed to the poor. To me, what Jesus says here is such a clear reminder of what kingdom mission looks like. That the results have have great impact, especially for those who are the most vulnerable. That those who go out in Christ's name model Christ's mission and ministry in their own life for those who need that hope the most. I believe that God cares deeply today for the millions of people throughout the world who are not merely on the farthest edge of their culture and society, but they are one step from falling off the edge. And as God's people, I believe that caring for the poor and the oppressed and the vulnerable and the marginalized, these are not optional add-ons for our faith. But instead, it is a mandate from God revealed throughout the Bible that his people are supposed to be good news for those who suffer and struggle and are hurting. And Jesus modeled this for us from the very first days of his public ministry. What he was doing was good news for the vulnerable, for, for the poor, the widow, the orphan, the refugee, the immigrant, for the one on the outside looking in. Jesus was good news. So also today, there are people all over the world and even here in our community. They've heard of Christ's reputation for compassion. They've heard of his generosity. Perhaps they've heard of his healing and his freedom. And the question is, will they see that in us? Will they see when they encounter his people, whether here or somewhere else, will they see that love, compassion, generosity healing and freedom will will they see that his followers are the same as he we are good news for those who need it will the marginalized among us find this to be true in us let me just give you a compliment church family we told you back in august that we were expecting some 800 afghan refugees to come to tulsa you may or may not know that Tulsa resettled most, more Afghans than most states, entire states. We, re, we resettled a lot of folks in our city. And as of Thursday, was Thursday or Friday, all of them are here. So we told you that in August, number 799 and 800, they, they arrived at the end of the week. Several of us were there. And for each and every one of those Afghan arrivals, somebody from South Tulsa Baptist Church has met them at the airport, driven them to the hotel, or been at the hotel to do their orientation. You all stepped up. And we have been good news to those folks. And I can promise you that because we know so many of them so well now and we hear from them. What your church has done has lowered our trauma level. What your church has done has made coming into the city in terrible circumstances so easy we've been good news to them but but there are others and there's more to be done and will we as the as christ's followers continue to be known as good news to those who need it most and then is the beatitude verse six blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me that's 
how the NIV translates it. Some of your translations might say, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. The Greek word that's underneath all of this is a word that'll sound familiar. It's scandalizo. It means scandalized in, in our language. Blessed is the one, Jesus said, who is not scandalized by me. We, there are so many other things that scandalize us or that can scandalize us. But Jesus says, I'm not talking, John, about being scandalized by Caesar. I'm not talking about being scandalized by Herod or the Sanhedrin or, or the rich or, or whatever it might be. John and John's disciples listen. Blessed is anyone who is not scandalized by me. And there are a lot of ways we could interpret that. We could think about, well, does he mean those who might deny him publicly? Does he mean those who, who hear the call, follow me, but say no? Does he mean those who, when Jesus preaches later on and, and there's a little bit stronger language and he steps on their toes, they're offended? Who's he talking about? Read it in the context of what we've heard. Go back and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, and blessed is anyone who is not scandalized by those things. And John, don't let yourself fall into that group. John, don't fall into the trap that the Messiah is here to give you more power and more wealth and make you more comfortable. Don't be scandalized by the fact that what the Messiah is doing is good news for those on the margins, those who are rejected. It is not making the rich richer. Don't be scandalized by it. And no one should be surprised. At least no one who read their, their scripture should have been surprised that Jesus' earthly ministry was doing this. Think about just these, these three texts from Isaiah that I'll read. Isaiah 29. In that day, talking about when the Messiah comes, the deaf will hear and the blind will see. The humble will rejoice in the Lord and the needy will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 35, then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then Isaiah 61, just the beginning of what we read in our Old Testament reading a moment ago. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness the prisoners, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I say to you today, as Jesus said to John and his disciples then, don't be scandalized by Jesus' love for those who are broken down. Don't be scandalized by words like compassion. There, there are movements out there even among Christians to say we need less compassion. We're tired of talking about justice. We're tired of all of this all the time complaining and this and that. There are genuine needs out there, and there are genuinely people who don't have the access that most of us have. Don't be scandalized by Christ's love and compassion and command that we minister to them. And don't be scandalized, Jesus says, not just by my teaching or, or what I'm doing, but by me. It's all about Jesus. Jesus. 
And really what Jesus is doing here is reminding John of what he's been telling everybody. Look to me, John, and you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be discouraged. And you don't have to wonder if the kingdom is here and if God is at work. Because look at the evidence. Remember what God's been telling you all along. And I believe, listen, I believe John was not in fact scandalized by Jesus. But instead, what we see in the next part of the text, and, and we're not going to read all of these verses, but I just want you to see, John was not in fact scandalized by Jesus. On the contrary, Jesus honors John the Baptist. There are very few people that Jesus actually publicly by name says this kind of thing about. And, and only John, only John the Baptist gets the specific words that Jesus is going to say here. He's talking to the crowds now. So John's disciples are going back to report to him in, in prison what Jesus has been doing and what he said. And as John's disciples were leaving, moving to verse 7, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. And he asked them, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, but more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. And listen to what he says in verse 11. Truly I tell you, among those born of women... There has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus praises John. He's not one that was swayed like a reed in the wind. He wasn't out there in fine clothes or in a palace. He was quite the opposite of that. And he wasn't just a prophet. He was the messenger preparing the way for the Messiah. And and what I, how I read what Jesus says here is of, of all those who have been born and called by God for a purpose, no one has fulfilled that purpose in their life better than John. And we know, parenthetically, Jesus is the exception to that. John finished his race well. He was finishing his race well, even as he was in prison. And yet Jesus says, whoever's least in the kingdom of heaven. So when we think in terms of God's economy and the reward that's waiting for us, it's better to be the least in the kingdom of heaven than the greatest on earth. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, Jesus will say later, and then everything that, that you truly need will be added to you. Whoever is greatest on earth is nothing compared to the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven. And I love what, what he said here through verse 11 because maybe john the baptist did have some doubts about jesus i'm not sure if he did but clearly jesus had no doubts about john and i love that he praises him in this way and he reminds us he was more than a prophet he was the last prophet of the old covenant he was the forerunner who went before the messiah he was the spirit of elijah preparing the way for the true savior of the world and Jesus 
it says just a little bit later for john came neither eating nor drinking but they say he has a demon some people were saying john was demon possessed yet the son of man came eating and drinking and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners in other words guess what the same people criticizing john are going to criticize me and you can't please them no matter what you do if you try to, to, to please them in one area, they'll find another way to nitpick you, criticize you, and tear you down because they are not seeing through the lens of the kingdom of God. But wisdom, Jesus says, is proved right by her deeds. An ancient Hebrew saying that also could say, you will prove what you say you believe and who you say you are by what you do and your actions. And John, don't miss this, is not great because he's John. He's not great in and of himself. He's great because of the greatness of Jesus and the role for which he was born to prepare the way for Jesus. It's his kingdom investment that is great. And his faithfulness was proved by his actions. Wisdom is proved right by her deeds. John's faithfulness is proved by his actions and jesus honors john the baptist so as we close today i want to bring us back to that beatitude blessed is the one who is not scandalized by me who does not stumble on account of me as we've said sometimes we only see what we're looking for what we want to see but i want to point us back to jesus and i love this statement from a scholar from long ago jesus does not just declare good news he brings good news i love that he doesn't just declare good news he brings good news but i would add to that jesus not only declares good news and brings good news he is the good news and today if you are feeling that emptiness if you if you feel like you're stumbling around in darkness whether you've never turned to jesus for the first time or whether you have before but now you're looking in the wrong direction today i want you to be pointed back to him today would you look upon jesus christ to his good news would you see his love would you see his compassion would you see him as one who welcomes you that he will meet you where you are but he will not leave you the same and that as he's drawing you to himself he simply wants you to take a step and come to him and, and today you have the opportunity to do that are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else no jesus says i am he and today it's all about jesus jesus himself is what's at the heart of this message and all who want to be a part of what god is doing in the world today just as he was then must decide what they're going to do with him what are you going to do with jesus what we do with jesus is the most important decision we'll ever make today if you know that he is he is calling you out he's drawing you to himself would you be willing to take that step and come to him would you pray with me lord jesus i thank you for the that term good news we talk about that a lot around here but we have it capitalized because we indeed believe you are the good news. There is no hope without you. Lord, today would you give us that hope-filled response. For all who would seek you today, would you show them the hope 
that can be found in you. If there's anyone who's never given their whole life to you to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, Lord, today would you draw them and, and give them the, the, the courage to, to take that step and follow you from this day forward. For those of us who have made that commitment before, Lord, if we're looking the wrong direction, would you fix our eyes back on you? Would you help us to take that step to follow you again and to represent you and your character your heart just as you modeled for us lord i just thank you for each person in this room and each person who's watching online and i just ask that you would move in, in each heart as only you can do in jesus name amen